In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You did really well a few weeks ago when you were able to spot the fake Degas. I'm going to try again. Anybody recognize that one? Not everybody at once. No. Show them, Al. It's the Red Vineyard. It's Van Gogh. It's pronounced Van Gogh, right? Like you've been, ah, right? Van Gogh. It's sort of a debatable question about whether or not Van Gogh sold many of his portraits during his life. Fair to say, he was pretty much an unknown while he was alive, and it was only until much later that his genius was really noticed. It was hidden. It was, in some ways, a mystery, and then that mystery became revealed. Well, imagine, if you will, what would it have been like for Van Gogh to have come to discover that his work, mostly hidden during his life, had now come to be celebrated by so many? Well, leave it to the BBC to help you imagine that moment. I'm going to show you a scene from Doctor Who, Matt Smith. Which doctor was he? Which one? The 11th Doctor, in case you were wondering. He has, he's a time traveler, Doctor Who is, right? And he's got the TARDIS, which is his blue police box that helps him navigate history. Well, he's got Van Gogh with him, and now he's taken Van Gogh into the future to a museum in which Van Gogh's works are on display. And so here's imagining what would it have been like for Van Gogh to discover how people came to understand him and celebrate him in time. Where are we? Paris. 2010 AD, and this is the mighty Musée d'Orsay, home to many of the greatest paintings in history. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, ignore that. I've got something more important to show you. Take all your chances while you can. Never know when they'll pass you. Glad to be of help. You were nice about my tie. Yes. And today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question. Um, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular, great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. 
He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange, wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. Vincent. Sorry. I'm sorry, is it too much? No. There are tears of joy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry about the beard. <laughs> Yeah, what would it have been like? His ear looks great. What just happened? And why am I starting a sermon like that? I'll tell you. The mystery of Van Gogh's glory, we'll call it, to borrow a biblical word. His genius, his importance, his capacity to capture beauty, his glory was mostly hidden during his life. And here now, in this museum, that glory is on display for all to welcome, for all to revel in. And not only is it on display, but in the curator of that museum, what do we hear him doing? Praising his glory. That which was hidden, which was to the detriment of all of those who were his contemporaries because they were not aware of it, now that glory is on display, and that glory cannot not be praised. It is the point of the delight to express that which you find glorious in what you see. And that moment, imaginary as it may be, captures that idea that whatever is glorious is worthy of praise. We are listening to a letter, a letter that we think Paul may have written to a church in what is now modern-day Turkey. And that letter is broken up into two essential sections. We're in the first section of that letter. That first section is all about the song of the gospel. What Jesus has done for us. What is that good news? The back half of the letter, which we'll get to after the first of the year, is talking about the dance that flows from the song. There is no dance without a song, but that song will always issue in a dance. What you're going to hear repeating that whole passage we read last week, but focusing just on the latter half. What you're going to hear on a number of occasions is a phrase, to the praise of his glory. I want you to count them. There'll be a quiz after you read it. But I think in hearing what Paul has to say about to the praise of his glory, that's the point of the passage. As we said at the beginning of our worship, the point of of gathering together and the point of knowing the Lord central to him is praise of him. And what we want to do in this passage, in verses 7 through 14, is identify two reasons that he is worthy of praise on the basis of his glory. And those two reasons split out into two parts each. And they both kind of 
center around this idea that if you stick around a church like this for long enough, you're going to hear the idea of the already and the not yet. Kids, you go on a trip, and after a while, somebody asks, are we there yet? And then like the dude in The Incredibles, we'll get there when we get there, right? No, we're not there yet. We're not yet there. And yet, if you'll just look out the window, we have already come many miles. Many miles have been passed. We've already on the way. We're just not yet there. You can't think of life in Jesus, in the gospel, without having those ideas firmly set. Some things are already true, and you better be nourished by that. And there are some things that are not yet true, and you better hold off on celebrating it because it's not yet there. But it does mean you hope. We're going to find two reasons, two reasons to put on display that give us a reason to praise his glory. And they boil down to these two ideas. There's a freeing that's involved and a furnishing. A freeing and a furnishing. Both of which have to be understood in terms of already and not yet. Don't worry. What is he talking about? I have no idea. Be patient. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3, which is one long run-on sentence that fortunately the translators split up into five sentences for us. We're going to focus on just the back half of it. So, if you will, would you stand? Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. So class, how many times in those 12 verses did you hear to the praise of his glory? A lot, thank you. Brilliant. Three, that is correct. Three times. Three times. Whenever you see something mentioned three times, like holy, 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 maybe that passage might have something to do about holiness. When you hear in a passage three times, to the praise of his glory, perhaps there is something that we should pause and ask ourselves. What is God's glory that is worthy of praising him? That's where we're going. 
That's the point of the passage. What is it? What's the first reason? The first reason that he can't stop talking about? It's in verse 7. Hear it again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, before we even get into the actual content of the reason, the first thing you need to focus on, again, is what we focused on the first two weeks we've been in Ephesians. It's that little phrase, in him. Gray out everything else and just notice that, in him. 36 times in the entirety of this letter, Paul says something in the effect of, in him, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, any number of combinations of that phrase, such that you and I, we miss the point of the passage until we grapple with what he keeps meaning by in him. It's this doctrine, we've spoken of it before, it's the idea of being united to Christ. The in, I know it's a preposition, it kind of has a spatial, locational idea. You are in Jesus in some ways what it means like to say I'm in Bermuda or I'm in uh, Anchorage. There's a sense in which you inhabit a space even though it's metaphorical language. It is more than that you just believe certain ideas about Jesus. It is more than that you just receive certain benefits from Jesus. It is that you are in him in some profound way. Now, let me see if I can unpack that for you. And may God forgive me in appealing to this analogy in order to get there. But I think it kind of works both in a helpful explanation of what union is and also what it is not. And so I appeal to that cult classic, Meet the Parents. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the Burns family circle of trust. See, if I can't trust you, Greg, then I have no choice but to put you right back outside the circle. And once you're out, you're out. There's no coming back. Mm. Well, I would definitely like to stay inside the circle. You have my word. I'm going to hold you to that. Circle of trust. Guess who's back in the circle of trust? So there's this circle, right? And there's a space that exists within it and everything that's outside of it. So it's this idea of location. You inhabit a space. It's not really a space. There is no circle that you walk into. But there is this thing that he calls the circle of trust. And in that sense, there's a, there's a little bit of overlap here in talking about the doctrine of union in that if you are in Christ, you are within the favor and future of the Lord. You inhabit that space. You are in it. And that's why the meet the parent scenes, they kind of help us get closer to this idea of doctrine of union. But what they don't do, and what I put it up there for you as a measure of contrast is this. You didn't get in that circle of his favor out of anything that you've done. And there is nothing that you can do that will allow you to be dragged out of it. You are in there because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on your behalf. And those who are his, he says, can never be snatched from my hand. You exist within the favor and within the future of God. 
But no, it is not. He loves me. He loves me not. No, it is not. You are in the circle. You are out of the circle. You are in it. That's the gospel. How does that doctrine of union split out in this passage in particular? It's the first reason that explains to us the reason for the praise of his glory. And it boils down to that word redemption. Which is a technical term that comes down like this. In Jesus, if you inhabit his favor and his future, you have been freed from your sin at cost of the Son. You have been freed from your sin in some sense at cost of the Son. The forgiveness of sin once for all through his blood. That is the gospel. Last week, you may remember, we spoke of the blamelessness that he's going to uh, present us to, present us with unto the Lord in time. Jesus was the blameless one who dies for the blameworthy. He is the one who was not corrupt, who would die for those who are corrupt. He was the one who loved the Lord perfectly, who died for those who were essentially in their constitution enemies of the one whom God had sent. He has come to free us. That's what the word redemption is. You redeem a coupon, what is that doing? When you redeem someone, you're buying them. You're, you're, you're purchasing them and you're purchasing their freedom. That's what redemption is. And if we may get very practical and very purposeful, if you have ever wronged something, wronged someone deeply, whatever those acts that you have committed that you cannot fix, whatever those choices are that you cannot change, whatever those things that you have done in your past that somehow lead you to roll over in the middle of night being haunted by that, you may know what it's like for someone to forgive you. You may know what it's like for someone to say, I will not hold that against you any longer. And if you have experienced that, then you at least know what it is to feel like a burden has been lifted from your shoulders. But you also realize that the one who is willing to forgive you is not doing so by a simple mental snap of their fingers. There's a cost involved. They must give up something in order to treat you with kindness again. That is the mark of redemption. And that, my friends, in Christ is already settled. Now, if you're the one who has wronged somebody, you hear that in a certain way. And if you've been the one who's been wronged, you may hear that and go, hmm, don't worry, I got my eye on you too. We'll come back to that. I just want you to know that I see you. But I am saying to you that what is already true in the gospel, if you are in Christ, is that you are forgiven. If I could put that in a little context, though, look, everybody's got a list, a list of things that you are burdened by, things that have been done to you, lies that have been told you, um, struggles that you face, uh, things that you cannot fix. Uh, pains that will not go away. And that list, whatever it may be, that you bring into this room this day, those are real. And those are troubling, no doubt. And no one will dispute it. And you know who else has a list? Paul. 
Paul has a list too. Paul's faced all sorts of things. Not identical to yours, but there's some overlap. But I think what Paul is trying to tell us here in this passage is, no matter what is on your list, no matter how long that list is, no matter which of you might recount your list and the rest of the room go, oh my gosh. No matter what is on that list, somehow, somehow with help, we may believe that what he has done for us in Jesus through the redemption and the forgiveness of our sin is still greater than the darkest curse that has come upon you. Somehow, somehow, we may actually believe that no matter how real and true those things are that burden us, no matter how that's true, it is possible, not only possible, but fitting to praise God even in your disconsolate state. Somehow that is possible because it is already true. But that idea of forgiveness, that idea of redemption, that is already true, but there is also a sense in which it is part of something that is larger and is not yet fully true. That this redemption is actually part and parcel of something on a much grander, let's call it what it is, a cosmic scale. And it's what you heard there in verse 13. Or verse 12, sorry. The mystery of his will, according to a purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Whoa, Nelly. What is he talking about? That's a lot of words there in verse 12. Just focus on the punchline. What the Lord has done in Jesus is gracious, it is mysterious, it is a lavish forgiveness of God, but that forgiveness is part of a larger plan to, as he puts it, unite all things in him. In, order, in other words, to bring reconciliation between everything that is estranged from God and to bring it into submission, to bring it into harmony, to bring it into alignment. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 of that book, it, it will cite, he will cite Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? A son of man that you care for him. And, and the author of Hebrews hears in that psalmist, he says, that's the perfect embodiment of Jesus. What is this son of man that God is mindful of him? But that later in that passage, the author of Hebrews goes on to say this, for when he, that is God, put all things under his, that is Jesus' control, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see all things under his control. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth that folks in Raleigh this morning feel like there are some things not under the control of what is good? And that list just gets longer by the week. What is not under his control? What is permitted to exist? Which runs rampant and wreaks havoc? I'll tell you all sorts of things. Envy, hatred, greed, malice, lying, murder, all of it. God is pleased by none of it. But it is there. And there comes a time in which all of that will be put aside. When all of it will come to an end. Such that what Paul says in another letter to another church in Romans chapter 8, he puts it this way. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. There will be an end to the futility. The path out of the bondage, the path out of the decay, that's where things are headed. Let me borrow literature here for a second. I miss Frodo. Do you miss Frodo? Man, I miss Frodo. Uh. Um, but when Frodo finally sees to the destruction of the ring, and what happens? Sauron falls, right? And when Sauron falls, it's this wonderful dramatization of Middle Earth being renewed in real time. And all of the orcs and the Urukai and the Nazgul, they all fall into the ground or blow up in the air, and all who are left standing are the elves and the men and the dwarves. Everything that once held Middle-earth in bondage is suddenly, it's healed. Now that's fantasy. And uh, shall we be frank, we read verse 12 and we hear this thing about uniting all things in him, and uh, we think, yeah, they might make a, Amazon series about that, but that's not reality. And so let me tell you this. What, or I ask the question, how in the world, <laughs> how in the world could we believe somehow, somehow that this is something more than just a pipe dream? Why do you think maybe forgiveness is related to the healing of all things? I don't know how it's all going to split out. I don't know how it's all going to shake out. But I know that anybody that's been forgiven, they automatically have the same interest in the healing of all things that Paul was speaking of there in verse 12 about uniting all things in him. Such that not only do they long for it, but the way they live is participating in that project in some small, frail, often failing ways. And so let me put it this way. Who is better equipped to bring humility to all circumstances than those who have been convinced that they were in need of redemption? Who is better equipped to show compassion to their neighbor than to see the one who saved them, who forgave them, who died for them, to say unto them, part of the great commandment is loving your neighbor as yourself. Who is better equipped to be generous to the needs of this world than those who see that everything that they have is a gift from him and that there is nothing that they have that they did not receive? Who is better equipped to act fearless in a world that will come at you and you don't care whether you live or die because you know that even when you die, it's not over? Those are features of character that serve this world. But those are features of character that are all downstream of this idea that you are already redeemed in the work of the Son. And then in your little neck of the woods, something of that uniting all things in him may play out until your dying breath. And when we consider that, the all-readiness of the redemption that anticipates the full unifying of all things in him? Yeah, if that's true, somehow we believe it, I think we can find a way to praise him for his glory.
There's a second reason. Not just the freeing that he does, the freeing from us and the forgiveness of our sin that looks forward to an end of sin, but there's a second and final thing that's involved, a second reason for why we praise him for his glory, and it's this idea in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Christ, within the circle of his favor in his future, there is a freeing in play. But there is also what we might call a furnishing, a provision. And this is the first of two times that you'll hear Paul speak of an inheritance. And I will be very straightforward with you. The translations on this passage, they kind of go in two different directions, such that it's not absolutely unambiguously clear whether or not Paul is talking about an inheritance that you and I receive, an inheritance from God, or if we are in some way of speaking God's inheritance, that he receives us in full, that we are his treasured possession, whether it's his inheritance to us or whether we are his inheritance to him, doesn't matter. Sounds good. It sounds like we would want that. It sounds blessing. Um, did you ever see Knives Out? Came out a few years ago. Wonderful little, I mean, it's Daniel Craig attempting to do a Creole accent. And, and, and sometimes he gets it. But it's, it's the story about this um, very uh, wealthy paterfamilias. And uh, he dies suspiciously. And uh, all of the conniving children are out to ensure that they get a portion of his estate. But then, um, uh, near the end of the film, we discover, or not actually near the middle of the film, we discover that he has set aside everything, everything, to this unsuspecting, guileless nurse named Marta. And then all the conniving children end up trying to cozy up with her, or worse, in order to make sure that they get their part. She gets everything. They get nothing. She gets everything. But there's one thing she doesn't get. She doesn't get the one who gave it all to her because he's gone. That's why they call it an inheritance. But in that story, she receives everything. Friends, when we're trying to understand what Paul means by an inheritance, he doesn't really unpack it in the moment. So we are left to fill in the blanks of our own understanding. Elsewhere, when he writes elsewhere to the church at Colossae, he speaks of this inheritance as a reward. The author of Hebrews speaks of this inheritance as something that is eternal. And, and Paul's buddy Peter speaks of this inheritance as unfading, unchangeable, imperishable. So we have to guess, what does Paul mean by this inheritance, whether it's ours of him or he, us of him? I, I think you could boil it down to this. The inheritance of which he speaks is every promise of God fulfilled. That that which has been crooked shall be made straight. That that which is full of confusion shall be made clear. That that which is full of chaos shall be brought into order. And as we know in other places, in Revelation 21, there shall be no more fear. There shall be no more tears. 
There shall be no more death. And all of those are gifts. And all of those we receive. But not without also receiving the one who gave them to us. This inheritance is all those things, but mainly they are him. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. That's the promise. That's the inheritance. Every promise fulfilled. And once again, I say those things to you, knowing full well there are people in this room, if not my own heart, a portion of it saying, that's pie in the sky. That's what Marx meant by an opiate of the masses. Just tell them everything will be great in the next life and then have them manage their very low expectations for this life. I hear that. How in the world can something so unimaginable ever sound real? If you've been listening closely to me through this sermon, you may have noticed that on occasion I have said this phrase on a few times. Somehow. Somehow. Somehow we believe that we are in fact forgiven. Somehow we believe that the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in Jesus is still greater than the darkest, most disconsolate thing that we could produce on our list. Somehow we can believe that he is going to set all things to right. Somehow. For me to say that phrase is not me just sort of being evasive or, I don't know. When I said somehow, it was to prepare you for what is already true despite the things that everything being made good again is not yet true. Because the answer to that question, how do I believe those things? How will these things come true? And how can I somehow rest in my present moment on some sort of claim that there is coming an eternal moment in which all things, everything sad will become untrue? How? It's because of what God has already done in the moment. He speaks of an inheritance, but Paul is here to remind us that there's already been a down payment on that inheritance. You ever bought a car, kids? You ever bought a house, folks? You didn't get either of those things until you did something first. You put down some earnest money. You put down something to show that you were good for being able to pay the bill in full. Well, the Lord has done that. The inheritance is a way off. It might be by noon. Who knows? But until such time, he has given us a down payment on that. And what is the down payment? That down payment is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, there in verse 13, puts it this way. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We said last week, your election in God was inked in eternity. But in another sense here, it was inked personally for you when the Spirit began to renew you such that it made sense to believe. And you did. And in that moment, something comes. With that belief, something emerges. Someone has already worked on you And now that one will work with you forever, and that is the Holy Spirit. He is our assistance. He was given to confirm and to reassure us that when the bottom drops out, when it all falls apart, when the dreams were dashed, 
You're his. And that's why if you have wronged, if you have been wronged, then you need to know that it is the Holy Spirit that is there to reassure you that you are not cut off from all goodness. And if you have been one who has wronged another, the Holy Spirit is there to remind you that there is grace for you, but there is life through repentance. There is new life in and on the other side of it. And the Holy Spirit is at work in both categories of people. But what the Holy Spirit is mainly out to do is to do this. It's been a while since you saw it. It's from early in the series. But a scene from This Is Us, I think, nicely captures what Paul means by the Holy Spirit, you sealed by it. So take this in. Brothers both abandoned ship, so this means more room for us, right? I watched the tape. Okay. 
Don't ever stop. Don't stop trying to, to make me see myself the way you see me. Okay, Katie girl, I won't stop. The Holy Spirit is there to shine a light on Jesus to the praise of his glory and to confirm to you that you are his and that you are seen as that father sees his child. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. which is there to confirm to us that we are his. And it is also sometimes to take us by the shoulders and say, because you're mine, stop it. This is his point. This is his purpose. And that is his down payment to us now. And you don't ever have to ask him, please don't, don't ever stop telling me how, to tell me how I'm seen. The Spirit says, I'm down with that. I'm good. And that's why we praise God for his glory. What's the take-home? Where do we go with this? What do we do? You praise him. <laughs> That's why we started this worship service with Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. I have given you reasons why you might praise him, why you might gather your heart and yourself and to praise him for those things. But I also know that you may come into this room just like the psalmist in Psalm 42. Why am I downcast, O oh my soul? Why is there turmoil within me? Hope in God. My salvation and my God. What is he doing in that moment? Praise is not on his lips. He is full of mournfulness. He knows that praise is central to knowing him. He knows that praise is a preferable way of life, but it just ain't there. And so what is he doing? He's asking his own heart, why is this not true for me? If praise is not true for you today, you have more to do than just saying, praise is not for me today. It is time for reflection. It is time for conversation. It is time for praying angry prayers if you haven't already. Because look, kids, there's a point in your life where you discover this world is not safe. And I'm not to put it too bluntly, but the rest of your life is discovering just how true that is. That you have certain assumptions about how things are supposed to be and then you have a little experience that collides with those assumptions such that you must reset your expectations. And in every step along the way when that happens, you have to ask yourself this. What did I assume and were my assumptions well substantiated? Did God say to you it would be easy? He didn't. That's all wonderfully abstract. What's the take-home? The take-home is something that I found a couple weeks ago that I thought made it perfect sense. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, 13th century, professor, philosopher, lawyer, theologian, writer, prolific writer, would not shut up. He 
He thought about everything that you'd want to think about. Namely, what about remedies for my sorrow or for the absence of praise? And he had some very practical things to say. What will be remedies for sorrow? Number one, tears. Why are you keeping them back? For what stoic future or virtue are you holding them back? Weep. It's for a reason. Weep. Secondly, what else? Friends. You need help. This is not all on you, and shame on you for thinking if it might be. You want to keep your remedy for sorrow? Fine. Friends help. The right friends, but they help. Thirdly, pleasure. I know there's a lot of things in this world like pleasure. I have none of it. Where you can find it, even in a minuscule mustard-sized way, that helps. And, and also, you know what else? A warm bath and a nap. He said that. That's in the Summa Theologica. It's in there. Little things that help your body can be of help to your soul. But you know what else he said? You need to contemplate on divine things and future happiness. I just did that for you. You're welcome. You have to think on those things. And you may think, I don't want to think on those things. And I know that feeling. Maybe for different reasons and not to the same profundity of depth that you're feeling it right now. But you have to go there. And you also have to come to this table. Because what we're about to do is the most inefficient thing in the entirety of this service. It will take a while. And that's the point. It's not all about get, sit, take. It's to receive this as a family. It's to stare at every soul that comes down that aisle and to think, that's a soul. It's to consider your own heart, reflect upon your own week, confess your own sins, prepare to repent in some way that you know you perhaps need to. The slowness of it is the point because that is the way in which we find another reason to praise him for his glory such that when we're done, we'll sing. And we might even sing and we might even believe what we sing like something Robert Lowry, a Baptist hymn writer of the 19th century, wrote. I think Enya did a cover on this and stripped it of all the theological language. But in one of those lines, he puts it this way. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Maybe when we reflect... Maybe when we take a nap. Maybe when we talk to a friend. Maybe when we weep. Maybe we can praise him for his glory. Let's pray. Father, forgive me if I've made it sound too simple. Forgive me if I've made it sound like it's just a this, this, and this, and then everything's fine. We all know it's not true. But I would pray that in our unbelief you might help us believe and that somehow in that belief we might not just go through the motions of praise but find a new kindling of it no matter the darkness that we face, no matter how real that darkness is and no matter how ostensibly unrelenting it appears to be. I pray for us that you might surround us and receive